All right, well, I want to get uh, kind of right down to work. If we could open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning, we're going to be looking at a part two to a serious topic, a topic on uh, lustful intent that plagues uh, many in the body of Christ, not just men, but men and women. And it's a text that I think uh, deserved a couple treatments, and I had studied through the text for last week, and the amount that I brought into the pulpit turned into two sermons. I kind of knew it before I came here um, last week, and then I studied some more and added to what I didn't finish last week. So here we go. We just need to launch into it. I want to begin by reading our text in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 27, reading 27 to 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, the problem is clear. The problem is simple to define, but difficult to deal with. It's the problem of lustful intent. The secret sins of the imagination. Lust is something that is deadly and lethal like an undiagnosed poison in the life of a believer or an unbeliever. It's also very costly. It affects everyone, including the one who's doing it, but not to the exclusion of the one who's doing it. This secret sin has a way of affecting people around it. The bottom line is people that refuse to repent of lusting are those who are an affront to God's holiness and God's justice. And they place their soul in jeopardy. An unrepentant, hard-hearted sinner who's not converted but lost and is feeding on his or her own lusts is in jeopardy of eternal hell. That's what this text is saying. To Sin in this way and not repent is to stand before God's holiness, his law mirroring back to us our sin and to basically leave God no other recourse but to send someone and condemn someone to eternal hell. It's the severest of punishments that God could give. This sin breaks two laws that are clearly written out for us in Deuteronomy Chapter 5, Exodus 20, before that in the Old Testament. The first being, thou shalt not commit adultery. You're not to break the marriage covenant by going outside of the covenant and sinning with another person, man to woman, woman to man. Both are violations in the Old Covenant system that meant death, meant execution. But the second command is, thou shalt not covet. The Seed of the sin of adultery is coveting. It's wanting what is not yours. It's wanting what you should not have. It's the desire in the heart that commits the sin first. Deuteronomy 5.21 says, Do not covet your neighbor's wife, tying these two violations together. 
do not covet your neighbor's wife. These violate God's holiness and justice. Ultimately, it's sinning against God's glory. It is putting yourself at enmity with God to harbor and not deal with this sin. So if you're sinning in this way, you find yourself in one of three categories. First of all, you are a believer who is guilty in this sin in need of an intervention. You need help. You need the word. You need the Holy Spirit. You need accountability to be dug out or it, it just basically loosed from this, uh, from this sin. Secondly, you could believe that you're a Christian, but not really be a Christian. You could be under self-deception where you're sinning in this way. You claim Christ. You say, I know I'm a Christian. You know, I prayed a prayer. I was raised in a Christian home, but you're harboring this sin in an unrepentant way and you are impassive about it. You're blasé about it. You don't care. The culture's this way. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's walking around zombified by media. So who really cares? I'm not going to deal with it anyway. And really what you're saying by that is you are a self-deceived person who is not a Christian at all. So you're either a Christian who needs an intervention or you are self-deceived, believing you're a Christian, but really not. And then thirdly, you could be a cavalier unbeliever who doesn't care whatsoever. I'm not a Christian and I'm going to sin in my heart and in my actions in the lust of my flesh and just give over to it. One of three categories. The third is perhaps one of the worst because you're to be most pitied as is found in an unreconciled relationship to God. You're an affront to God's holy character. You grieve the Holy Spirit and you're literally declaring war upon God saying you're my enemy. I don't need you. I will fill myself with a cheap substitute of sex and lust in my own heart instead of giving you the glory that's due your name. I'm going to bow to this idol rather than giving you glory. That's the dividing line of this sin. People are trapped in this ensnarement. Many believers, sadly, are trapped in this sin and they have the power to overcome it. Romans chapter 6 verse 14 says the sin that once dominated us no longer has dominion. It no longer has rule over your life. And so God has unhinged or unloosed the vice grip of sin in your life where you can actually receive help, receive forgiveness and go forward as a Christian. The good news, whether you are an unbeliever or a believer who is harboring this secret sin is simply this. The, the way out is the same for whatever category you're in. Whatever of the three categories I've listed uh, that you're in, that you find yourself to be in, the solution, the answer out is the same, and that is repentance. Repentance. The solution is clear. Understanding the way out is simple, but actually repenting can be very, very hard. It's not hard because it's a work. It's not something that we drum up in and of ourselves. Repentance, nevertheless, is a commitment to say, Jesus, you are Lord, and I'm dying to this lust. I'm giving up one thing for another. You either have your lust and your hidden sin, or you have Christ. Repentance is a choice, and repentance is what John Piper has called radical amputation. It's hard in the sense that you're making a hard commitment to you were going one way and you're going to do an about face and go the other way. You're doing a 180 
away from the world, away from your flesh, away from your sin, and you're making a clean break to say, I'm gouging my eye out or I'm radically cutting my arm off about this sin. What does it take to repent? What does it take to see this sin and turn from it? It takes the hardcore commitment to say, I don't want to go to hell for it. I want Jesus and I want heaven instead. Hell is Jesus' massive brake pedal that he puts up in front of us and says, there are eternal consequences, so turn away from this sin and be delivered from it and be delivered from the eternal consequence of hell. Well, what does is, what is radical repentance look like? I saw this phrase here in Jesus' teaching that we are to literally rip our eye out, tear it out and throw it away. Or verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Radical repentance looks like amputation. And it reminded me of a story that I looked up and, you know, there's been movies about it and everybody's heard this before probably, but a guy named Aaron Ralston. Who's heard of that story? It's a young man who was hiking. He was a young man in 2002, I should say. He was hiking on an expedition in a wilderness, and he had to cut his arm off to save his life. Let me just read to gross everyone out this morning and on live stream as well. Let me read you the incident as was posted online. An outdoor adventurous Aaron Ralston believes he's invincible and can do it all in outdoor adventures and do it all by himself. The outdoors was his second home, April 26. It was actually 2003. On a Saturday, he went alone on a hike generally secluded area of what's called Blue John Canyon. And um, he had done this, um, I guess, before, but he didn't tell anyone where he was going. And he fell down into a crevice. A big one is called a crevasse. He fell down into a crevasse. What happened to him, though, is when he fell down, a boulder, probably about this size, followed him down there with him. And he was otherwise unharmed, but his right arm was wedged by that boulder up against the side of the crevice. And so he's stuck there. So that's the situation he finds himself in. He has access to his gear and a small supply of rations. He tries to remove the boulder by chipping away at it um, to no avail. He's uh, wedged there. His hand is wedged there. He hopes someone will rescue him. He had... uh, a couple of uh, gals he had seen up on the trail, um, but, you know, he was hoping they would find him, but they were not coming. It, his boss um, would check in on him, him missing work by Tuesday, but by then it would be too late. There was extreme weather conditions that he was thinking through. He begins to think through his mortality. His mind is going towards the ones he loves, distant relationship with his family, a broken relationship with the love of his life. Um, he's, he's messaging on his phone, I guess, or whatever he had as a device, a goodbye message to his family. His mind is wandering while he's there, whether or not he should take his own life. And he's literally, and I read other articles, he was verbally saying, I do not want to take my own life. I will not do that. And he's also saying, I don't want to die here. And so one choice remains, and that is he needs to sever his arm, the arm that he's already lost anyway in this ordeal. So suffice it to say, he's, he's wedged there. It's an immovable boulder. He's either going to stay trapped and die or cut his arm off and live. This is Jesus' point here in his teaching. And the boulder is the boulder of lustful intent. 
that ensnares the right arm. You will either sever that off or you will die. You sever it off and live or you stay there and you die in your sins. It's a dire situation. And the one thing that saved Ralston from dying physically was his realization as to how dire his circumstances truly were. That's the point. The point is, what drives you to radical repentance? What drives you to dig deep and say, what am I willing to hang on to or let go of is the dire situation that your soul is in if you just leave it in the sin and cycle of unrepentant, lustful intent. Lustful intent is spiritual adultery, but it's far more serious than the Old Testament where it prescribed execution. What we're talking about here is eternal death. So Ralston, just to finish the story, he took out his dull pocket knife and began to puncture his own flesh. He began to go for it and began to deal with uh, his situation. And it is gruesome, and, but there are a few gruesome details that are apropos to the analogy here, so I'll share a few. Um, he punctured his skin. Um, it had decomposed, and gases, gases and a putrid smell came out of his arm as he did that. He found that his hand was jellified. It was already gone. I mean, the point is, the arm was already decomposed, It's like our own lives. If we begin to dig around with the pocket knife of the word of God and say, examine me, Lord. Am I truly a Christian? Examine me. How can I repent of this? What do I need to do to reroute my life spiritually so that I can die to this sin? If you begin to do that, you realize that that sin, those cheap thrills are short lived and they're soul draining sins, right? If you harbor lust in your heart, it's draining you. It's decomposing you spiritually. It's, it's making your life like that lifeless arm inside because you're walking around living a lie, living the life of a hypocrite. And so dealing with that sin is the right way. And this is what Ralston was doing with his arm. It's a picture of how we deal with our own hearts so we can begin to enjoy life. Well, there's one final detail that I just have to share because I think, again, it makes the point, but it is kind of grotesque. It's after he cut away his flesh, his knife hit bone, and the knife was not going to go through the bone. So he had one other recourse, and that was basically to throw his body weight against the boulder and break his arm to get free. It's another picture of this, the sin issue. You either harbor the sin. If you hang on to a little bit, you can deal with the flesh part, but you don't really make a full break with this sin. You're still going to be trapped You're still going to stay there and you're still going to be dying spiritually. You have to go all the way like he did against his own arm so that he can live. He could live. It's a commitment to stop to where you're not going to start again. When you sever a limb, the limb is not going to reattach. That's the point. You're, You're committing to cut it all the way off. You say, well, where is the grace in this? Where's the grace in this message? Well, let me give you a few points. Here's some applications up front right away. Okay, these will be posted online, but write them down if you want to. Number one, grace is in the warning. Grace is in the warning. The fact that a doctor tells you you have cancer, does it sounds like the end of the world, but if you're not told you have cancer and you can't deal with it before it metastasized, 
That's a far worse death sentence. And so it's far better to deal with the issue while you still can. Grace is the warning. Tells us what happens if you do not repent. Number two, grace tells us what we have to do. He gives us the instruction on what we have to do and to what extent we have to do it. Number three, grace is when the Holy Spirit actually goes in your life and confirms this warning is real. This is the situation that I'm in. I'm either, I'm either the believer who's hypocritically struggling. I'm the self-deceived unbeliever who needs to become a believer in the first place. Or I'm a rebellious, hard-hearted unbeliever. Grace is God diagnosing that in your heart even this morning. That's grace. Confirming the warning, confirming the solution. Number three, grace is, uh, is, I think this is number four. Number four, grace is God giving someone faith and strength to recognize the secret sins and to actually turn away from it. So God, God's grace is strength in your life to do something about it. Number five, grace is, re- is Jesus receiving you when you repent. You turn away from the sin, you turn around, there's Jesus waiting for you with open arms. That's the grace of this text. And then number six, grace is Jesus giving you his spirit and his truth. And I would include his church and body to help you along the way with your new direction. He gives you the grace of the Holy Spirit. He gives you the Bible and he gives you people in your life to help you with your new path. That's the grace of this text. We need it. We need it to hit us hard. And that's one of the reasons why I um, just brought it in broad sweeping fashion first off. Uh, last week, we began to go from the forest to the trees. I'm going to do that a little bit again. Again, this is a deadly sin that has to be dealt with. And Jesus is giving us a big brake pedal by repeating the word hell twice, the warning of hell twice. If we just If you just ignore this morning, ignore the word of God, ignore these messages, you are flying in the face of God's warning of hell. Our culture is sin-laden with this uh, sin. It's zombified with lust. Yes, politically, things are turbulent. Yes, there are a lot of things that can distract us. But a lot of people are going to go from that political distraction and they're going to go lust to find safe haven instead of going to Jesus. I want to draw the dividing line this morning. Yes, we get worried. Yes, we get upset. Yes, we wonder what it's going to look like, right? Go to Jesus. Don't go to the pig pen of lust. Don't do it. Run from that. Cut it off. People who are unwilling to repent will have their whole body thrown into hell. What's taboo is no longer taboo. This is the age, as I said last week, of the open marriage and people are just making it acceptable to sin in this way and we should not overcomplicate this but embrace the fact that, that we can be free from it. And I said last week, it, it, you know, at risk of being offensive, as horrible as actual physical adultery is violating a marriage, a person who actually repents after that spiritually and does business with Jesus, even though they might lose everything in this life, They're far better off going into eternity clean and forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to deal with this sin before these physical acts take place. But the grace of God is there for us. So how do we get grace? How how do we allow a passage like this? And I asked this question as a lead into our outline last week. How do we allow this warning of hell to impact us if we know we're Christians? 
Because as Christians, you know that you're not going to hell, right? You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're forgiven. But at the same time, Scripture again and again calls the believer to examine themselves to see if they are truly in the faith. The danger of self-deception is real. That's where I began with the sermon. So examining yourself and saying, Lord, I want to do business with you is the key to actually defeating this sin in your life, this sin dominating addiction and habit that's that's a sin of uh, men and a sin of women. When people commit adultery, often it's a man with a woman or a woman with a man. Where, Where does that come from? Is that just an act? No, it starts in the heart. This is a broad teaching that that spans to children, to teenagers, to senior saints, to single people, and to married people. We all need to hear it. We all need to embrace this teaching and say, Lord, help me. Well, how do you get help? It's through simply this. Seeing repentance, which is the solution, the hard solution, the radical amputation, seeing that as submission to the Lordship of Christ. Radical amputation, spiritually severing your arm, spiritually gouging out your arm, your eye is not physically doing that. It's spiritually going aggressively before the throne of God and saying, Lord, I submit to you my life, my heart, my actions. It's all yours. You are point one last week. You are Lord over my imagination. You are Lord over my imagination. How powerful is the imagination? Well, when, when did we think in our lifetime that rockets were going to be able to land back on the launching pad that they launched from? When did we in our lifetime ever even really conceive that our grandkids or great grandkids might colonize on Mars? When did we think that? I kind of envisioned that we'd be able to talk to each other on our devices and, and FaceTime. That's amazing technology. But these technological inventions just come from the mind and the imagination. And if the mind and imagination is that powerful, then realize that the seeds that you're sowing in your mind by not repenting of your adulterous, lustful intent, they are going to actualize. They are going to destroy your life if you leave them undealt with in your life. Hypocrisy stifles and stymies Christian growth. It it stifles the family. Secret sins, they hurt family relationships. They break trust. And people don't even know why trust is being broken, but it's really that issue that's going undealt with. The grace is that you can deal with it. The grace is that Jesus is pointing it out to deal with it. So don't take this hard, but take this as severely as Jesus says it. He is Lord over our imagination. There's a phrase in Latin called uh, Latin in Christianity. It's Coram Deo that we live before the face of God. Jesus knows it all anyway. He's read our email. He's read our cell phone. He, he's read the internet that we search But he sees your mind, more importantly, and knows your mind and knows your heart. And he loves you, nevertheless, right? And gives you the way out and the way forward by his 
grace. So these are applicational sections again in Matthew 5 and following from the Sermon on the Mount. And he's dealing here with lust. He wasn't abolishing the law. He was revealing the intent of it. He was revealing the intent of don't commit adultery and covetousness. He doesn't want you to do more and more stuff to get your life right. He wants you to go deeper and deeper in terms of the deep dive of the meaning of the law, the intent of the law, and what you have to do about it in terms of submitting to God's lordship. And this begins with submitting your imagination to God. It's saying, Lord, um, superficial obedience won't cut it. For the adulterer, if it's all based on superficial law keeping, then that adulterer is hopeless, right? They've committed it. I'm hopeless. You know, put the scarlet letter on my chest. I'm done. But if you understand that the law of God is dealing with the heart, you can repent of that and come back to him. And for those who say, well, I've never committed adultery, so I'm good. God gets you that way. And he says, no, if you're doing it in your heart, you've sinned and you've sinned. Here's the word already. It's already happened. That's verse 28. It's already happened. So you have to deal with it. But there's grace in both, in both scenarios. If you will but repent and yield your imagination and your heart to God. This sin is the sin of desire. It's this lust, lustful intent means um, burning desire. It's not natural attraction. It's not someone, it's not just designated in terms of someone who's in deep seated, you know, down in the basement perversion. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, that's included here, but she's talking about general lust, general scenarios that build in men and women's minds that are um, not holy and that need to be dealt with severely. This is, this is something that, you know, where even women will think, oh, well, if I just had that husband or that man, I would be better off. My life would be good. That's also needing to be cut off in the mind and in the heart of women. Um, the law points this out. It was, adultery was severe in the Old Testament. If you committed physical adultery um, with your neighbor, then both the man and the woman would be physically executed. In the New Testament, it talks about how this sin of lustful intent, if it's, if it's harbored, if, it's, if sexual immorality, the sin of porneia is going on in the heart of someone and they don't repent before they die, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians 6, 9, Revelation 21, 8, you'll burn um, in the lake of fire with murderers, with sorcerers, idolaters, liars, and also the sexually immoral. They burn forever. So how do we figure this out? We're not the final judge of our own hearts, right? We can't just look at God and say, I know I'm good. No. We go before God and we say, you are Lord, examine me. Cause the things that are going wrong in my heart to surface so I can call them out and lay them before your feet and say, please forgive me. I want to reroute this in my life, but by your power and by your grace, not by my moral, my, my external morality or moralism. Hell's a big brake pedal for that. When you look at... Um, Jesus being Lord over your imagination and you yield that to him. You, it brings us to our next point, which I think is so important. Jesus is Lord over your eternity. He's Lord over your imagination and he's Lord over your eternity. You say, but I know I'm saved, so I'm in charge of that. No, you're not the Supreme Court um, deciding your eternity. Jesus is. 
And so as we examine ourselves, we also have to say to the Lord, if we want to deal with this sin, Lord, you're in charge of whether I go to heaven and heaven or hell. And so as a believer, I believe I'm going to heaven. And because I'm a believer, I'm going to deal radically and brutally with this sin. That's what Jesus is calling for here. It's a submission to Jesus being Lord over your eternity where people say, well, I'm good. I know I'm good and I'm good because my conscience says I am good. So now I can have my secret sins too. That doesn't work. That doesn't work with this text. It's submitting, saying, Lord, you are Lord over my eternity. I'm going to repent in light of the warning of hell. I'm going to do it even as a believer. Matthew 7 gives this warning in verse 21. Many will say, Lord, Lord. Um, Well, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But on the one who does the will of my father on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name? We did mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look, hell's warning The danger of hell is the danger of one day waking up on the other side of eternity and having faked yourself out. What a a hopeless thought. What an awful thought that I'm in hell. I'm in darkness. I'm in forever hell. I'm fit with a resurrected body to burn in hell that will never disintegrate all the way. It won't. It's just eternal fire and it's fire with perpetuity. There's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth, there's weeping because of the regret. I can't believe I didn't believe the word. How dangerous position I had placed myself in. How dire my circumstances really were and I never dealt with them. I never yielded myself to the Lord in this life and I have found myself in hell. That's the weeping. The gnashing of teeth is the anger That perpetuates where you're saying, I'm so angry that I'm in this situation forever and ever. And perhaps angry at God, wrongly so, for believing he wrongly put you there when you really deserved it. John 5 speaks of uh, how we are fit with a resurrection either to life or resurrection to judgment, a resurrection to death. Verse 26 of John 5 The father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Revelation 20, the Lord Jesus on the great white throne will execute or exercise this judgment. The great white throne from his presence, earth and sky flood away. Time will stop. We will stand before the Lord. John says, I saw the dead. Great and small standing before the throne, the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. So those who are in the book of life go to heaven and those who are not are judged according to what they have done. Judas Iscariot is the paramount example of someone who was self-deceived, who is in hell Would have been better for him not to have been born. Hell is, it puts everything into perspective. even puts things in perspective for the believer. We're so thankful we have escaped hell, right? We're so thankful we're not going there. We should be warned 
to warn people about hell and to tell them about that. That is sort of the missing message in the gospel these days. The eternal consequence of not repenting from your sin. Not repenting of this world. Hell represents the absolute authority of Jesus. It's all in terms of how we choose, but ultimately it's in terms of how he chooses. So what is radical amputation? What does it mean to gouge your eye out or cut your arm off spiritually? Both of these sound very severe and repentance is very severe. These are metaphorical um, examples. We're not supposed to physically cut our eye out or our arm off. Um, Origen, the early church history father um, of Alexandria, A.D. 195 to like the 250 A.D. time period, he actually castrated himself. That's called having a very, very bad and wrong hermeneutic. He was not a good Bible student, obviously, because he didn't interpret the passage the right way. We need to understand that this is not physical measures, but at the same time, we do sin with our physical eyes or our arms and hands, but those who are blind sin in this way because of their hearts. Those who are handicapped physically can still in their hearts reach out and touch things they ought not to. This is not talking about self-reform. This is talking about the spirit of God working in your heart as you submit and yield yourself to him. Now, does that mean practically you're supposed to do certain things or not do certain things? Absolutely. And the Spirit of God will reveal that to you. But it has to be spirit wrought. Repentance is a gift. Repentance begins with God. And then we are responding accordingly as we bow in lordship to him. We bow to his lordship. The eye. I want to talk about that for a second. I talked to a guy who is an ophthalmic engineer. A couple weeks ago, he was here visiting a friends in Alaska and I was talking to him in my kitchen. And he said that the eye is made of material that, and he makes, he engineers computers and, and designs machines to analyze the eye and does cutting edge technology. And he was describing that it all went over my head. But the part that I understood was the, the material of the eye is actually as strong as concrete. It's interesting to think about. God's design of the eye is fascinating. It can focus. It can deliver messages to us. And it does a lot of things involuntarily. The white part of our eye is, is the same material as the iris and the colored part of our eye. And so it's an amazing thing. But as amazing as the eye is, God is saying, and Jesus is saying in the word, it, you should be willing to sacrifice an organ like that. Something that feeds you even holy pleasure by looking at the beauty of our world. You should be willing to sacrifice things in your life to be right with God. Submitting to the Lord. It's saying something as precious and as priceless as my eye, my right eye. The dominant eye for sight is expendable. Think about the law of the Old Testament, Lex Talionis. I actually was reading on Lex Talionis. That's the eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, um, you know, command in the old covenant system. That was actually, as gross as that sounds, that's actually grace from the Old Testament. You know why? Because if you were to purposefully or even accidentally harm someone and, and cause them to not see like you're doing something and you take someone's eye, that person would try to 
have you executed for that under old covenant law? You say that person tried to kill me. They took my eye. I can't see anymore. So that person needs to die. And instead of the law saying, well, that person is immediately needing to be executed. The law says, no, we'll just make it an eye for an eye. It sounds horrible, but that's actually grace. You still get to live, but you live impaired. That's what Jesus is saying repentance looks like. In this life, we are willing to sacrifice certain things, looking at certain things, talking to certain people, going certain places, because God's convicted my heart that this is wrong. This secret sin is killing me. It's hurting other people. So it's an eye for an eye. I will sacrifice that eye so that I might live, so that I might live. That's what repentance looks like. It's sinning with the mind's eye and it's, willing, it's a willingness to let the Holy Spirit reroute your life and gouge out your mind's eye. Your right hand, your right hand really represents your right arm. Um, the right arm in scripture is a representation of God's strength. Um, you've heard of you know, how Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's at the strong side of the Father. Usually people are right-handed. Not everyone is gifted like me to be left-handed. No, just kidding. But anyway, um, but most people are right-handed. And it's a, it's a picture of strength and it's the willingness to say, I would sever my right arm, which means that everything's going to feel funny because I'm doing everything with my left hand now. I'm willing to do that because the Spirit of God is rerouting my heart and my life with repentance. Let me just zero in and make this as practical as I possibly can. Look at verse 30. It says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. What does that mean? What does it mean to to tear out an eye, um, to lose one of your members um, rather than being thrown into hell, literally cast into hell, and then your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, this is not saying that our action is the cause. This is saying that if we don't deal with what's going on in our hearts, that's going to create a physical action. So it's sort of working in reverse language, saying you have to deal with this by killing the sin in the heart so the action dies. That's the point. This is called the mortification of sin. If you don't break the cycle of what happens in the heart that then spawns the action that's jeopardizing your soul. So how do you starve the sin? Well, Romans 8, 13. This is where Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But by the, if you live by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Same thing in Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Put to death what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. How do you put something to death? It's simply this. You feed and starve. You starve and feed. You say, I'm not going to go there in my heart, in my imaginations. I'm submitting my imagination, my mind to you. I'm, I'm recognizing that you are Lord over my eternal destiny. And I'm going to starve that sin. And I'm going to feed my heart with truth, with righteousness, with spiritual relationships. I'm going to pick and choose the friends that I put myself around. And I'm going to choose wisely in light of my purity. It's feeding and starving. If you starve a sin, you're basically saying, I am crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live no longer according to the flesh, but by faith in the Son of God. I'm crucified. It's dead already. You recognize that, that there is that decomposition death dynamic that's in my heart, and I'm not going to feed that death that's there until I go to heaven. That remaining sin, I'm not going to feed it. You have a choice to make, and you say, I'm not going to feed it. I'm going to starve it to death. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's basically saying, I'm taking my eye and I'm recognizing that sin is nailed already to the cross. My arm is severed. It's nailed to the cross. Job did this. He said, I've made a covenant or promise with my eyes. Then how, should I, how can I gaze upon a virgin? 1 Corinthians 7, 1, one interpretation says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. This is violent language. It's starving the temptation on the inside. It's rendering yourself incapacitated to look or see certain things. Again, if an arm is severed, it's not reattaching. It's letting go of what you need to let go of. Letting go of who you think you're able to be around It's throwing your foot or your hand away. Matthew 18 includes the foot in Matthew 18, 8. It's the same context. It's literally saying, I'm cutting off my arm. I'm rerouting where I will allow myself to walk or to go for the sake of starving this sin because I'm in fear of hell. It's rerouting my words, what I'm willing to suggest or say to someone. All these are very important. You guard your heart. You watch men, watch your compliments, right? Watch your compliments. Watch what you're willing to say to another woman or not say. For two reasons. For your own soul's sake and for that person's sake. For that sister in the church's sake. Watch what you say. Watch where you look. Women, watch who you're willing to bond with. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Um, protect each other in that secret sins are deadly secret sins are costly not talking about the cost of divorce even or the cost of physical death we're talking about spiritual death all right here's some take-home points some bottom line applications as we kind of bring it home here i want to bring some at least grace to the sobriety of this discussion number one jesus is equating lust with adultery, but what this means is that everyone is guilty of this sin. Let that sink in for a second. Everyone is guilty of this sin. If you're talking yourself out of it, just listen to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. That means you don't have to choose to do this. But with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape that you'll be able to endure. Um, you, You come to the crossroads, men, women, but you can choose Christ and you should. Because you can choose Christ and you can receive forgiveness, everyone has hope. Everyone's guilty, but also everyone has the hope of the gospel. Number two. Simplify the solution. Simplify the solution for lust by being willing to just say, this is a submission issue. I'm either submitting to my lust, bowing down in idol worship, 
and making up a bazillion excuses for why that's okay. This once or why the culture says it's okay or why Jesus will forgive it again. Instead of excusing it, submit to Jesus. Submit to Jesus. Repentance is submission. Yield your mind and thoughts to him. Yield your choices to where you'll go and to to whom you will befriend. Yield that to God. Number three, fear hell as an unbeliever and rejoice in the fact that you as a believer have fled from hell. You've, You've escaped hell as a believer. But we should still be sobered by the concept of hell. Number four, consider what you gain from being pure. I mentioned this before. Your spouse, your children will sense your purity. Your friends will feel safe around you. Your coworkers will trust your integrity. Your ministries will open up before you. God can use you. He can give you the grace that you need and the hope that you desire and have in the gospel. Be willing to go secretly with your secret sins to the Lord and be willing to open it up to safe relationships within the body. There's help, there's hope, and there's a path forward. 